the food you eat can have an enormous influence on how long you live and your likelihood and risk of contracting diseases. But what is the optimal ratio of foods that you should be eating? Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today I am joined by Dr. Walter Longo, who is a professor of gerontology and biological sciences at the University of Southern California. He's also director of the Longevity Institute. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Longo. Well, thank you. So you have a long history. You're a researcher, you're a PhD, not a medical doctor, but you're doing extensive research in one of my areas of passion, which is optimizing mitochondrial metabolism with the use of dietary uh, interventions. So perhaps you have an interesting history too, in that you come through this through an area of calorie, calorie restriction. Uh, and, and perhaps you can describe your uh, process of how you evolved and, and eventually uh, focused on the, your current area of research. Yes. Yeah, so uh, actually, I was a student of Roy Wolf for uh, many years ago, and Roy was one of the pioneers of calorie restriction. He was a medical doctor, and he was very interested in uh, basically using diet to uh, prevent and even treat the diseases. And so that uh, started back in the early 90s. And uh, But then I went on to uh, to turn to more molecular understanding uh, of what connects each ingredient, what connects each amino acid, uh, the, the sugars, the fats, the type of fats to the pathways that we were studying, particularly the um, pro-aging pathways. And two of them we discovered, one called the PKA pathway, one called Taurus kinase, both having now uh, been shown to be central in the AD aging process, not just in simple organisms, but possibly also in mammals. So, uh, is it true that your lab is the one of the first ones, or the first one that discovered the uh, the TOR pathway, the mTOR, now called the mechanistic uh, target of rapamycin? Yeah. Well, we didn't discover the TOR pathway. We discovered the TOR pathway, the role of the TOR pathway in aging, right? So, and, and in protection of the cells. Uh, Michael actually discovered the TOR pathway uh, a few years before us in um, in, in yeast. Uh, in his work in simple uh, organism called uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Okay, good. So thanks for that clarification, because we'll talk about that a little, little bit later, because that really plays a, a central and profound role in, in uh, really understanding how to optimize the diet. So, but getting back to the calorie restrictions, I've interviewed uh, Gary Taubes before, and and he's not convinced, and he's, he's a, I'm not sure if you're familiar with who he is, but he's a pretty Good yeah, investigative journalist, investigative journalist in biological sciences, and he's not convinced from his review that there's a lot of literature out there that supports the use of calorie restriction restriction for the extension of human lifespan. And I'm wondering if you could uh, provide us with your take on it. Yes, I, I would probably agree with him. Uh, when you look at calorie restriction, which means uh, about a 30% restriction in calories below the normal level. And you do this all the time. So even the monkey studies uh, where they took both at the University of Wisconsin and the National Institute on Aging, they took monkeys and they restricted them like that for 25, 30 years. And the results are questionable, meaning that Wisconsin showed some effect on uh, mortality and diseases, but uh, NIA didn't. And also, if you look at overall mortality, even the Wisconsin studies shows that 
they did not live, the monkeys that were color restricted for so long did not live that much longer because they, they had a lot less diabetes and cancer and cardiovascular diseases, but probably had higher levels of other problems. This is why we never really focused on color restriction, uh, but tried to uh, get the benefits of color restriction at the same time um, and not the negative effects. So that's, uh, that's where these periodic uh, fasting mimicking diets uh, come from. Okay, great. So, the uh, in addition to that, of course, uh, the there's a practical challenge with uh, uh, the uh, application of that because people are not going to be very compliant to calorie restricting. It is not. I think in one of your earlier interviews, you you suggested that maybe one in ten thousand people could do that because it's just not it's just not conducive to long term compliance. So. Uh, uh, you mentioned this fasting mimicking diet that uh, provides many of the molecular benefits. But before we dive into that, let's discuss some of the molecular benefits for, from calorie restrictions and the one that you're seeking to reproduce th through this, this uh, new type of approach that you've developed. Yes. So I think it, there are multiple advantages or potential advantages. And, and one of them, the biggest one actually turns out to be uh, the long-term effects on um, IGF-1. And so one of the factors that uh, regulate growth uh, pathways, growth genes, and this IGF-1 really pushes the cells, all kinds of cells, uh, and not just IGF-1, also there are other growth factors, but certainly IGF-1 seems to be uh, the major one, pushes the cells to, to grow, uh, but there's not much to grow uh, or much room to grow. And so uh, we have a lot of evidence that this uh, turns into accelerated aging. And so that's one of the effects of, of uh, uh, these dietary interventions. The other one that we're seeing is um, um, regeneration, rejuvenation, meaning that by killing a lot of uh, cells and, and part of organs, in fact, and systems, uh, you get rid of a lot of dead cells or bad cells, damaged cells, and you turn on stem cells and, and then regenerate, replace the old damaged cells with, uh, with new ones. And that's what we think is another major effect. And the third one is probably intracellular, meaning that uh, the cell also undergoes some, somewhat of a cleanup uh, during these uh, dietary interventions. That would be autophagy or mitophagy? That well, autophagy, mitophagy, but maybe there are other processes that we still okay. uh, haven't quite understood that uh, have to do with uh, repairing the system and giving the time to the system to repair itself. So, uh, would it be fair to say that this influence on IGF one is also uh, similar to the growth hormone because they, the IGF one and growth hormone are, seem to be closely related? Yes. So as far as aging is concerned, they seem to be in the same, what's called axis, the growth hormone IGF-1 axis. And so, uh, for example, in mice, the mice that have record longevity are growth hormone receptor or growth hormone deficient. Uh, they're also IGF-1 deficient. So uh, the, that pathway or that axis seems to be the most important. Now, we followed uh, for a number of years, this group of people in Ecuador that are also growth hormone receptor deficient, so they have the same or very similar mutation to the mice that have record longevity. And then a few years ago, uh, we shown that uh, they uh, seem to be uh, very much protected from cancer and also from diabetes. And we suspect that this protection is also extendable to more diseases. So 
uh, although they may not be very long li longer lived, very much longer lived than, than their uh, relatives, but they seem to be much healthier. Okay, great. <clears throat> now, one of the uh, reasons I suspect that you undergone or continued along your pathway is this initially for longevity. And the younger you are, the less important it seems to be. And as older you get, of course, it becomes more important. But if uh, would you say it's fair to summarize that if you optimize for longevity, that you're indirectly optimizing for actually preventing almost all chronic degenerative diseases uh, and treating them uh, in many cases, if, if you optimize those pathways? They're one and the same. Yeah. So you're optimizing for longevity, you're optimizing for health, essentially, and prevention of disease. Yes, prevention of diseases, uh, for sure. Uh, treatment, I think, gets much more complicated. And I think in that case, you have to exploit the understanding of uh, normal cells and damaged cells, whether they're cancer cells or you know, uh, neurons that are damaged or whether they're autoimmune cells. And that's much trickier. And I think that each... Uh, requires a much uh, different intervention. For example, in our case for cancer, the combination with chemotherapy or other uh, mm -hmm. drugs. So, uh, and the timing and, and so, yeah. So treatment is much more complex to handle. And I don't think it can be handled simply by intervening on longevity. Right, but, it's, but it does seem to form a foundational basis of which you can add other therapeutic modalities. Um, so can you describe what your fasting mimicking diet is? I mean, it seems there's all these benefits that are, are being ascribed to fasting. And I'm, I'm a per, I, initially, I wasn't that strongly in, in favor of that because I thought there was some negative, like many people, uh, some negative metabolic consequences. But it seems for most, it's such a powerful intervention but it's not something you do the rest of your life otherwise you'd be dead so uh t t describe to us your uh, the evolution and what your fasting mimicking diet consists of yes yeah, so then the the hypothesis was when we first started that also considering the negative effects we were seeing from the color restriction let's say an immunity maybe the response to uh wounds etc we were thinking this cannot continue, as you just pointed out. You cannot be fasting all the time. You cannot even be color restricted all the time. So is it possible that if you do it once in a while, the body will have a memory of that metabolic switch, and that will last a long time? And that was what we tested first in uh, simple organisms, uh, then in mice, uh, and it worked very well. So if you take mice at middle age and you give them with this periodic fasting, so you put in four twice a month for four days on a diet that is about uh, that is restricted in proteins, restricted in uh, carbohydrates, but relatively high in fats. Um, then if for just four days, it's a low calorie, low protein, low sugar diet, essentially. Um, and then you switch them back to the normal diet. And actually it mm -hmm. turns out that they eat normally, right? Meaning that mm -hmm. they per month they consume, they're not restricted at all. They consume their uh, normal amount of food and yet they have uh, health of the tumors, and even the tumors they develop, they develop later, and, uh, and they see a lot of them seem to be benign. They're protected cognitively, so they are much better at performing various uh, cognitive tests. Um, they have reduced inflammation, uh, and they have a longer uh, mean lifespan. They don't have a longer maximum lifespan, and we suspect that that is because um, the very old mice did not like it at all to, uh, to be fasting or to be on the fasting mimicking diet. 
And so uh, we think that uh, now, for example, with the human fasting making diet, which I'll talk about in a second, um, we, we basically say after 70, we don't know yet. It doesn't mean that it may not be beneficial, but I think that we need to do more studies and maybe we need to come up with a higher calorie version of the fasting making diet, which now is about 50% calorie restricted. Um, so that, uh, that we don't have the good and the bad after 70. There's no indication that before uh, there are any problems. And in fact, the mice, they were fairly old. They performed very well on the fasting-making diet, but the very old ones uh, did not. Okay, so uh, would it be, so it's, you have essentially two four-day periods in a month or a little less than 30% of the time in the month where there's, they're going to calorie restricted 50% less calories than they normally would take but it's relatively low in protein and carbs and very high in high quality fats is that is that a good summary of what you're doing that's a mouse right the mouse study uh, was designed like that now the human study is instead uh, less frequent so it's 5 days a month about the same uh, idea so uh, very low sugar um, high relatively high complex carbohydrates uh, low proteins, no animal products at all in it, high uh, levels of uh, good fats. Okay. And what types, and this is only five days once a month for the human version? Yes. In the clinical trial, we did uh, three cycles of this uh, once a month for five days. And then uh, we monitored, this was a randomized trial. And then we monitor people um, at the baseline, the beginning, before they started, during the diet, after uh, and then a week after the third cycle, and then three months after the third cycle. And would would this type of intervention be enough to put most people who try this into ketosis? Yes, absolutely. So they they will be temporarily be uh, in in ketosis, uh, but this will only last about three days or so. And uh, and also to us, it was important not to push uh, the patients. Uh, to areas that we did not quite understand as as much as we would like. And so we felt that, I felt that the five days uh, was an ideal time for compliance, but also for safety reasons. So most of these uh, individuals who, who try this are going to be in ketosis. Would this include the typical American who is overweight, maybe by 50 pounds or so, and you know, it has a long history of eating the standard American diet, which is high in refined sugars and processed foods. Or would they require a longer time? Because I know some people who seek to just do simple water fasting with no calories seem to have a struggle for a while to get into, into uh, nutritional ketosis. Yes. Uh, so we... Uh, wanted to first of all uh, reduce reduce the burden to the the very lowest point, and so this is why on day one, for example, the human diet has got about 1,100 calories, um, and um, and this I think helped tremendously compared to let's say a water only fasting uh, for compliance, also for safety. I mean, with a water only fasting, uh, this should only be done in clinics. I mean, people do it outside of the clinic, but it doesn't mean it's a good idea. And um, so I think uh, in the five days, I think it was also important to give the sense to patients, especially the ones that are obese, like you just pointed out, that you only have to do this for five days. Then you go back to what it is that you, for you is so important. 
And this is, uh, I think, really key because um, the, uh, it just gradually uh, allows the patient to move into this idea of spontaneously maybe even decide, I don't need that sugar, that much sugar anymore because I was five days without it. And now, yes, I still want it, but maybe I can reduce it a little bit. And uh, so we're seeing that a lot. It's a slow process, but uh, in addition to the long-lasting effects, it's also some of the behavioral changes that uh, may occur when you can at least do this for five days. Sure. Well, and also, if they've shifted more towards burning fat as their primary fuel, then they're going to uh, have the ability to reduce their cravings quite dramatically because they are burning fat and they're not craving the sugar as much. When you can't burn fat, I mean, you have to have something for fuel. Your body requires and demands it. And then if most people are using carbohydrates to supply that fuel, then they're going to feel miserable. But when they made that shift, it's going to be a little bit easier. So I think that helps helps in the whole process. Uh, and and I'm, I'm particularly intrigued because I really am fond of what you're doing and I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, why don't you just describe what metabolically goes on during this fast? I think we alluded to it earlier with respect to the autophagy, mitophagy, uh, rebuilding, cellular repair, improvement of IGF-1 hormones, and then the magic that truly occurs. I mean, that's sort of a negative. It's like what exercise is, is good for you overall, but it, initially it actually damages the muscle tissue. So similarly, uh, when you're fasting, you're you're actually uh, in some ways damaging yourself. But the magic, I believe, occurs is when you, in this refeeding phase, when you're actually rebuilding the cell. Can you just so can you describe that process? Yeah. So the the process um, I think is is really comprehensive, meaning almost everything changes. This is why I tell uh, patients and uh, you know work with a doctor, be careful because. This is, really changes your body in a way that almost nothing else. I mean, nothing that I can that I can think of. So, uh, for example, the IGF-1 goes way down, the glucose goes way down, the ketone bodies uh, go uh, are elevated or greatly elevated, and the reason is, as you pointed out, that the body starts burning fat, and it turns out that instead of burning all fats, it burns the, primarily the visceral fat, right? So. Uh, and this is a really important point. We really didn't see much of a significant or a significant difference in the subcutaneous fat. We saw a significant difference in the abdominal fat, um, indicating that um, uh, this is this is coming mostly from one source. Maybe this is the reservoir that where the uh, the body goes first uh, when uh, when the glucose is not coming in. And, uh, and then I think uh, um, the, uh, the clearance of the damaged cell is also uh, very, very important. Now, we've shown this for, uh, in a mouse and human preliminary multiple sclerosis trial, which, um, in which we were able to show that each cycle of the fasting-making diet is able to kill some of the autoimmune cells and then turn on the stem cell and regenerate cells that are no longer autoimmune uh, now the the human trial is still preliminary, but certainly it was uh, uh, is, is very promising, especially when you consider that, like in the mouse, we saw tempor a temporary reduction, which is counterintuitive, but temporary reduction of the white blood cells in the patients. Right, so over seventy percent of the patient had over twenty percent of uh, reduction in white blood cell number. But that told us that it's working 
in people like it's working in mice. So the system tries to save and maybe some redistribution, but also we believe killing uh, of white blood cells, turning on the hematopoietic stem cells, and then when you refeed, and only when you refeed, uh, this is now, the stem cells are now giving rise to, uh, to uh, young and functional uh, white blood cells. But we now, at least in the mice, we have evidence that this happens everywhere. But also the clinical, the human clinical trial supports the, the notion that this is also happening everywhere in the human body. Yeah, that's a particularly fascinating aspect is that uh, it also seems to improve stem cell production uh, and release. And of course, we need those to continue to be healthy. And uh, in fact, many people actually undergo stem cell transplantation for a variety of reasons, but it would seem to be far safer, less expensive, and perhaps even more effective You can if you can do it naturally with dietary modulation like you described. Yes, uh, and I think the, the big advantage is the coordination, right? So when, when you inject somebody with stem cells, the stem cells don't have a program that goes along with them. Uh, they're just stem cells without an order to do specific things. I think that with fasting, um, it, when, when the immune system, in fact, when the level of white blood cells, in fact, shrinks and it goes to a lower level, there is a clear program that is turned down during the refeeding uh, rebuilding, telling the system to rebuild everything that is missing. And so I think the advantage is not just uh, uh, having the stem cell, but having the stem cell that know exactly what to do. Now, and now we have a number of papers that are going to come out on this, uh, and we're starting to see a lot of similarities with the embryonic uh, or sort of the developing cells, the developing organisms. So uh, this may be one of the very few interventions that brings organs and systems back to, not, of course, not completely back to that level, but certainly it exploits what always knew how to build an organ to partially regenerate it. Sure. Maybe let's, if we can now dive into some of the details and the specifics. And I'm wondering if there is a difference in the macronutrient calorie distribution between the fasting phase or, or the calorie reduced phase and the refe refeeding or refueling phase. So are they still about the same percentages of, of nutrients in the same, t t you know, high percentage of high quality fats, low in proteins and, and uh, net carbs, or is that different in the different phases? Yeah, no, it's, it's different. And basically uh, what we did to us was also important, again, thinking about the, uh, how applicable this is. Uh, we just told people, go back to whatever it is that you eat normally. Um, so yeah, the patients just return to their normal diet. Now we, we did give them a transition, one day a transition diet that is a, a relatively light, uh, low protein, uh, again, minimal uh, animal products. Uh, so one day to make sure that it's not uh, uh, too much of a, a uh, switch from very low to very high. So an in-between diet uh, lasting one day. But then uh, on day seven, let's say, or so, patients go back to, the normal, to, to their normal diet. Okay, so thanks so for that. So refeeding is, is using a normal diet. Okay, so the, the challenge with that, as I'm sure you and everyone watching this understands, is that the normal diet for most people is atrocious, and that would be a kind description. I mean, they are just consuming fuels that are 
almost beyond reprehensible and never designed for optimizing, uh, certainly for optimizing longevity. So I'm wondering with your passion in longevity and your understanding of molecular biology and studying this for decades, uh, if you thought that there, if you could design an optimized program, not just put people on what they're going to be compliant with, which is probably going to be a lousy choice. Uh, so if that, if you have any, uh, thoughts and recommendations and optimizing it for those who would be compliant to whatever the ideal might be. Yes. So, uh, you know, I wrote a book on this and pretty soon it's going to come to the U S and, uh, by the way, all the profits go to research. So, um, I hope people buy it, but, uh, yeah, it's called, at least in the Italian version, it's called the longevity diet. I have to see what the American title will be, but, uh, yeah, in, in that, uh, I, I use uh, basically all the decades that I spend uh, working on aging, not just to describe the fasting mimicking diet, but also to describe the everyday diet that, uh, based on the centenarian studies, epidemiological data, clinical data, mouse data, etc. Putting all that together, then um, I came up with uh, uh, this uh, mostly plant and, and fish-based diet, mm-hmm. uh, so pescatarian diet that is uh, low in protein, um, and high in nourishment, uh, so a lot of legumes and um, and uh, and some fish, um, but uh, low sugar, high complex carbohydrates, uh, and uh, high good fat. So a similarity, a lot of similarities with the fasting mimicking diet, but of course, uh, in uh, in a way to uh, allow people to maintain a normal weight, and also. Uh, maintain high nourishment, and, and, and we see this all the time uh, in cancer patients, but not just in cancer patients, that people often go from one problem to, the other, to another, so from an atrocious diet like you described to a deficient diet, and, and the, the deficient diet, whether it's B12 deficient or it's protein deficient, uh, could be as bad as the atrocious diet just by shutting down, let's say, the ability of the immune system to fight infections or uh, to fight cancer cells. Uh, so yeah, so I think if you go uh, too far on each uh, mm-hmm. side, you can be in trouble. No, I definitely want to explore that. But just before we do that, I'm curious as to the approximate macronutrient ratios that you came up with in the, your book for the, uh, the pescatarian version. What was, it, what was the protein levels, carbs, and, pro- and uh, fat? It's about uh, uh, 55, uh, 35, 10. And then 35 of, uh, 55 complex carbohydrates uh, and 35 fats and 10 uh, protein in percentages. Sure. So relatively- trying to, keep the protein, trying to keep the protein about 0.7, 0.75 grams uh, per kilogram of body weight per day or okay. 0.35 uh, grams per pound of body weight. Uh, per day. So which would come out to about a gram per kilogram of lean body mass, which might be a more accurate way to assess it because, you know, there's a wide range of of, of people's uh, lean body mass and it's actually what you want to base it on. So, but it sounds like it's about a gram per kilogram. So, uh, and that I, I would assume underlines uh, your uh, focus previous focus and work with uh, the mTOR pathway and the appreciation. And maybe you can discuss a little bit about that now because we don't hardly ever have a chance to interview an expert in that that pathway since 
not many, well, at least initially, many people weren't studying. There's more researchers now, but uh, but you, with your specifically your focus on longevity, I'm wondering if you could talk about the influence of protein on longevity and, and health, because it's my impression that most of us are eating far too much protein. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and we published a paper on that a few years ago showing increased mortality in, in Americans that uh, and, and, and particularly cancer mortality in Americans that had the high protein diet. And, uh, but yeah, this makes sense. And makes one of the reasons why it makes sense is that proteins and particularly certain amino acids, leucine, methionine, uh, they are central regulators of these growth factors, uh, particularly IGF-1 that we just mentioned earlier and that have a, a pro-aging and also pro-damage uh, effect. So the higher level of protein, the higher levels of these amino acids, the higher activity of TOR, S6 kinase uh, pathway. And, uh, and as a consequence, now we have very clear evidence in many organisms that this TOR uh, accelerates aging and also accelerates mortality, meaning that all kinds of organisms will die earlier and develop many more diseases uh, when they have uh, this uh, pathway activated. Now, the other pathway, which is much less known, which also was first described in my lab is the sugar uh, PKA pathway, RAS PKA pathway. And now there's starting to be evidence from our lab and others that this may also be conserved, uh, meaning that in addition to the protein pathway, there's also sugar pathway uh, that is as bad or almost as bad. And I think we're, we're probably going to hear a lot more about that. And we've been saying that for 20 years now, but I, I think finally we're starting to see uh, these conservation effects uh, in multiple organisms and starting to see the data from mice and also some of our own data from, from human samples. Uh, so I think that uh, hopefully uh, soon enough will be more accepted as, a, as another key uh, pro-aging pathway. And uh, I'm sorry, could you expand a bit about the, uh, the PKA pathway? Because that's relative, I, I don't recall hearing that before and what that acronym stands for. Uh, protein kinase A. Okay. So protein kinase A is, uh, in yeast, we have known for decades that responds to sugar. So the more sugar there is uh, available and the more this pathway, this gene gets activated and this gene then act, uh, in turn can uh, inactivate certain transcription factors uh, that uh, in yeast are called MSN2, MSN4, that are very important mm -hmm. for protection of the cell, but also for the reprogramming of the cell uh, into a more, what we call a maintenance state. Um, so uh, for the longest time, it was just a yeast story. And now we're starting to see evidence from, from mice, uh, both with PKA and also RAS, um, that uh, in yeast, uh, acts upstream of it. We're starting to see evidence that this may represent another uh, a, a set of genes that when active uh, make the, the organism age more quickly and also develop more diseases. Okay, so there sounds like they're related to the sirtuins, which we know are connected to longevity. Um, the yes, I mean, we don't know how, but, uh, but it's likely that the sirtuins are, are, I mean, we know that they're connected to some of these genes uh, it's not clear what the relationship is yet. 
Okay. So, you know, what? one of the factors that really intrigued me with your work was this focus on cycling. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, there's many benefits from fasting or calorie restriction, but the, there's there's no way you want to do that indefinitely. It's going to be highly counterproductive. So I'm wondering similarly, if there's this Goldilocks window of protein, we just finished just describing the downside of excess protein, but even if you had an optimal protein or you minimize the activation of the TOR pathway with sort of the opt, what you're you know, the one gram per kilogram of lean body mass of protein intake. Do you, th- now the, the, this, the, the Goldilocks window I'm referring to is this balance that we have between losing lean muscle mass as we age or sarcopenia and sort of keeping the optimized activation level of TOR. So do you think there's a benefit to going to high levels of protein, maybe 1.5, two grams per kilogram, uh, for a short period, maybe a day when you're doing strength training exercises and go into this cycling method. And it's sort of a similar cycling that you're doing with the the, the um, fast, fasting mimicking diet. Yes, I think so. Uh, there is a number of groups that are looking at uh, the relationship between protein and muscle uh, synthesis, uh, muscle protein synthesis. And I think they've clearly shown, for example, that 30 grams or so of proteins are needed in one single meal associated with strength training uh, for, in order for the uh, muscle uh, protein synthesis uh, to occur. And so, um, yeah, I will say that there is an optimal, uh, optimal level. And uh, now we have also, in the paper that I mentioned earlier, we've shown that there were uh, before 65 and after 65 groups, meaning that people that were 65 and younger benefited from the very low protein, but people that were 65 and older did not benefit. And so we suspect that um, that is because in the 70, 80-year-old, that extreme level of protein intake, extremely low level of protein intake may not be as beneficial. Now, the study, the correct study has never been done, meaning Mm -hmm. that there has never been a study where you take a a number, you know, a thousand healthy 80-year-olds and you give them exactly a low level of proteins, and you see how they do compared to the ones they eat 1.5 to 2 grams per kilogram a day. Uh, so I suspect they will still do better um, because usually when these studies are done, you do a survey, but among the people that report having low protein are people that are sick, people that are frail, people that are malnourished, and you bunch them all together. So you might have 10% that are super healthy, but 90% they have problems, right? So it's amazing already that even before 65, that group performs better or much better than the well-nourished group. But uh, so anyway, yeah. So most likely the lower, uh, later in life, higher protein intake is better, but uh, a very high protein intake is probably still detrimental. And so there was no evidence in our study that the people that had the high protein intake, even at older ages, did better. Uh, it, it was sufficient to do a moderate protein intake, even in older ages. All right. So that's good. So I know the studies haven't been done, but I'm wondering from your understanding of the molecular biology of it, if it still makes sense to do this after older, 65 or 70, to do this pulsing version, especially integrated with a weight strength training exercise program. So not to have high protein or higher protein every day, but to have higher levels. And perhaps I was not familiar with the 30 grams per meal, you know, and uh, 
intake, you know, on those days that you're doing the strength training. So maybe two, three days a week, maybe four days a week. Uh, would that make more sense? And then go back to the lower versions. So do this pulse. I mean, this pulsing seems to be key to, to biological health. Yes, but that study, not just one study, many studies have shown that it doesn't really make any difference if you have 30 grams or 60 grams in that one meal. There is equivalent muscle building effects, right? So Mm -hmm. the 30 grams optimized, they had a a, a amount of leucine that was required in in the 30 grams. So the quality of the protein does matter there, but... They how, showed how many, that gra- how many grams of how many grams of leucine, and would it make a difference yeah. if there's a high amount of branched chain amino acids in the in that? Would you need less? Uh, yeah, I don't remember the exact number, but they were talking about leucine as being the key activator mm-hmm. of TOR, and TOR being uh, important, tr- so tr- uh, an important trigger for the building process. So they were saying they basically published that once you push TOR and you start the process. 30 grams are all you need. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. whether you have three times as much. Now, if you do that twice, you might get that building twice, occurring twice. So if you do it in the morning and then you do it at night, then, then of course, that makes a difference. But uh, so this is what the study is pretty clearly shown. So yeah, by uh, answering your question, the pulses are key because that's all that matters. You just have to have enough proteins, TOR activation, the building process occurs, and then you know, that's long lasting. Uh, and so if you just did that once a day, uh, it would probably be sufficient uh, to, uh, to keep a good uh, muscle mass. Now, they haven't done long studies on this, so mm-hmm. we don't know uh, how to best do it. But certainly, the short-term studies indicate that you don't need a high, very high protein, but you do need sufficient protein, and you need the training uh, to optimize uh, mm-hmm. the muscle building. So those of us who aren't researchers don't really have access to measure the TOR pathway like you do. And I have no idea, once you activate it with this 30 grams of optimized branch chain amino acids, how long does that pathway stay activated for? Is it an hour, two hours, 12, 24? I have no idea. Uh, I don't don't know that anybody has done that in in humans. Um, So we don't know, but we do know that that activation once you show, once you have enough of the amino acids, uh, that activation uh, is sufficient to carry on then the long-term uh, protein synthesis in the muscle. So it, it may not matter how long it stays on. It may just matter that the process is, is activated and maybe the satellite cells uh, in the muscle are, are, are going to work to, to generate uh, uh, new muscle and bringing in the amino acids to, to do the the building and uh, yeah, so I think uh, uh, for people out, out there, I, I, I don't know that it's uh, necessary to uh, to know how long tour is on, but maybe that that that's that, I mean amount of amino, amino acids is sufficient to uh, to get the muscle effect. Okay, well, thank you for that uh, explanation. Now, you also have sought to use this intervention, this uh, this di- uh, fasting mimicking diet, in the treatment of cancers uh, in the university that you work with. And uh, from watching a previous interview that you did, it sounded like it was an arduous process, and that it took five or six years before they even got to the point where they were willing to adopt it until you radically modified it. So, why don't you comment on uh, that? Uh, attempt and where you're at now with it? 
Yes, the uh, the initial diet was fasting, water-only fasting, and uh, we thought that people, once we explained what the potential was, they, they would do it, but patients didn't want to do it, uh, oncologists didn't want to do it, and so it took us forever to even collect data from 18 patients. Um, we just uh, recently published on that. Uh, then we went to the National Cancer Institute, and they funded uh, a grant to develop what we call fasting mimicking diet, and that's where the fasting mimicking diet comes from. Our cancer studies, actually. Then we eventually adapted it to normal people. But uh, yeah, so we developed this diet, and the idea was uh, a diet that has the same effect on IGF-1, IGF-PB-1, glucose, and ketone bodies as water-only fasting does. Right. So we had to match. Uh, the efficacy, um, and that was important to then claim that this has a, uh, a reasonable chance to be as good as fasting, water-only fasting in the uh, A, protection of patients against cancer, and B, sensitization of cancer cells uh, to chemotherapy. Uh, sorry, protection of patients, not against cancer, but well, against cancer, but more so against chemotherapy, and then making it worse for the cancer cells once they, uh, the patient receives chemotherapy. And this we've shown very, very clearly in mice. Uh, now we have uh, data in, in multiple clinical trials supporting this, and I, we're going to have more studies coming out in the in next uh, year or two, uh, and hopefully uh, soon enough this will be standard of care. So with the publication of your studies, do you believe that there is an increasing adoption of these these fasting mimicking diets by oncologists to at least use them as an adjunct to the concurrent, uh, their current treatment program? Yes. So the, um, both in oncology and, and other doctors, and I think there are about 600 doctors in the U.S. alone that uh, recommend uh, fasting mimicking diets uh, developed in my lab. And um, in cancer, of course, it's a little bit um, trickier because oncologists are, are waiting for the more conclusive clinical trials, and we understand that. So I think soon enough, well, we're already seeing a big difference. So there are a lot of oncologists that are already saying, my patients can now wait. I'm going to allow them to go on a fasting-making diet or on fasting. Uh, some of them are resistant. Some of them are, are very favorable. Some of them even encourage it. But I think it's going to be much, much uh, higher uh, adopt, uh, use once uh, the larger clinical trials are completed. Great. An another researcher who's been doing this for a while and using these types of diets to treat cancer is Dr. Thomas Seyfried, who we've inter interviewed for. He's a professor of biology at Boston College. And I'm wondering if you could and, uh, describe the differences between his approach and yours, and my guess is that he's doing it more chronic long-term, although he does have interventions of periodic fasting, water fasting. Uh, but I think it seems like you have more cycling in your pro process. Yes, actually completely different. So, so as far as I know, uh, his uh, diet is, uh, is a ketogenic diet, so a very high fat, normal mm -hmm. calorie, uh, I think relatively high protein uh, diet. No, no, no. No, it's yeah. not high protein. No. But it's relatively high, right? So no, not no. high protein. No, no, no. It's still about a gram per kilogram. It's, it, you know, yeah, the, so right. So, maybe so, 10% yeah, so. of calories, 8% of calories, somewhere in that range. 
Okay, one gram per kilogram. I, I uh, okay, but let's say that there is a, a good amount of calorie because it's normal caloric. Mm -hmm. uh, no, a good amount of calories coming from proteins, right? Which we, of course, uh, I've shown, for example, in, in our mouse studies, uh, to be able to completely reverse the um, the protection of normal cells. So if you have the fasting mimicking diet or fasting, and then you give mice. Uh, a normal level of protein, just a normal level of protein, they can reverse a lot of the protective effects, right? So that's why we take it to a much lower level than than that, and um, and uh, and of course theirs is chronic, meaning you give it to the patient for a long time, and we just give it to the patients for for five days. And as far as I know, their major um, use has been for uh, glioma patients, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Difficult cancer to treat, notoriously right, right, resistant right. to conventional treatments. Yeah. And now the the question for the ketogenic diet, for example, we sh we used it for uh, multiple sclerosis uh, in the mouse model, and and even though it was chronic uh, in the mouse model, at least for multiple sclerosis, didn't work very well. It worked a little bit, but not very well. And one of the reasons for that may be that once you maintain a, a normal level of calories coming in. Um, the uh, the body figures out how to uh, get back to by gluconeogenesis, etc., uh, a relatively high level of glucose, and uh, and I'm, you know, and I'm not sure how it affects, for example, growth factors. So uh, those are things that that uh, we'll have to look into, especially because we know that growth factors and glucose levels uh, are very important. To have low levels of these is very important for the effects that we see in both under normal cells. And on the cancer cells. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I've sort of stumbled onto a process that I call feast famine cycling, which is somewhat similar to what you're doing. But I, I engage personally engaged in long term, you know, by six months or so of, of chronic ketogenic nutritional ketosis, uh, and I started noticing some adverse side effects. Uh, and uh, I think it's probably related to the mechanism of the action of action of insulin, which uh, many people aren't aware of, but when you have the re the way insulin works is not by driving glucose into the cells. That's what's conventionally taught, but it really low works by stopping the liver's ability to produce glucose. So if you have very low levels of insulin, you're going to suppress. You're not going to be able to suppress hepatic gluconeogenesis, and your blood sugars, paradoxically, even though you're not having any carbohydrates, will rise pretty dramatically because your body wants that high level of sugar. So, interestingly, the, the when you have really a relatively high uh, glucose level and you have really low insulin levels, if you eat sugar, your blood sugar drops, which is absolutely counterintuitive, but but it's mm -hmm. related to the mechanism of insulin. So uh, that's when it became really clear to me once I understood that, that you really have to do the cycling. And the only way, because you, if you, re you really do want to keep your glucose level low, uh, but you know, if you do, if you do too much of the glucose restriction and protein restriction, you'll, you'll actually, it'll be counterproductive. So this, this cycling is absolutely imperative. And I think that that is the key to optimizing uh, the whole molecular pathways that are involved in, in chronic disease and longevity. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, 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 uh, you, you hit it right in the head, uh, meaning that if you understand the mechanisms like you just described, I mean, this is really important. This is essential, right? You have to understand exactly what goes on because if you don't, then you're going to get surprises. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you were surprised after six months that yeah. you're starting to see 
problems, you know, and, and I, I've also seen some of that, for example, in the alternate day uh, fasting, uh, sort of some papers showing uh, benefits, but there's some papers showing detrimental effects, right? It just up, up and down, up and down may not be uh, doing this all the time, may not be uh, also not such a good idea. I don't know. I'm not saying I'm not yeah, talking we, against it. I'm just right. saying that, that you need studies and you need mechanisms. And uh, until those are available, I, I would warn people to be very careful because uh, it, it, could, uh, it could give you surprises. And another uh, philosophy that I resonated with that you have is uh, basically that a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. And by that, I'm referring to the use of uh, drugs, specifically metformin and rapamycin, which we know have beneficial effects and may be useful agents in certain disease states, but to be used prophylactically by those who are seeking to extend their lifespan may not be a wise idea. And, and But you see a lot of people recommending and endorsing these strategies, and I just cringe when I hear it. But I, I was just overjoyed to hear your perspective on this, which was, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think that when whether it's metformin or rapamycin, I mean, we discovered the TOR pathway in aging, so we would have loved to say, oh, take rapamycin every day, which is a TOR inhibitor. But uh, uh, I, I always thought from the very beginning, we actually had the first data on, on, on rapamycin in 1997. We never even published it. And the reason was that we felt it's so central to the cell. How can it be that you <laughs> block something so central and it just does good and no bad at all, right? And I, I couldn't believe it. And then... 2009 came and the mouse studies came and still no negative. And then you started seeing all the negative studies, hyperglycemia, cataract accumulation, uh, uh, testicular degeneration, et cetera, et cetera. So after the good news came the bad news. And, uh, and I think that's what people underestimate that when you, when you have a, a sophisticated blockade, but very unsophisticated effect, which is completely block an enzyme, uh, that's that's most likely going to have bad effects sooner or later. Yeah, and I think part of that, those side effects that were described were related to the chronic, uninterrupted use of those at relatively high doses to completely suppress it. So that maybe, you know, just like we're talking about cycling, that the smaller doses and done intermittently might have some benefits, but certainly it seems to be far wiser, safer, less of, less expensive, and, and far less side effects is to do it with your with your food. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Also because there is a, a long, long history of use by large clinics, uh, the Buchinger Clinic in Germany, the True North Clinic in the United States. I mean, the, these clinics uh, see six, seven years, and they do much more severe restriction for much longer times. And, uh, and so the safety record, at least according to them, is extremely good. So, so that was really reassuring for us. I mean, we, we felt that we had to do the clinical trials, but certainly it was good to know there's thousands and thousands of people that do much more severe intervention every year and they're fine. So I, I'm wondering, uh, as director of the Longevity Institute, if you're still actively involved in longevity research, uh, specifically as it relates to dietary strategies. Yes, absolutely. So uh, I say 50% of my lab works on longevity. And, uh, and in fact, all these, uh, a series of papers that we uh, are publishing, uh, publish and continue to publish 
uh, dealing with uh, regeneration uh, are really focused on rejuvenation. So can you um, make uh, or, or uh, the brain younger? Um, and so I think that that's really uh, going to be the uh, a big uh, uh, our you know big research effort in the future for us and for many other people. And, and I think again the coordinate the ability to get to uh, awaken systems that have been dormant for a long time and they know exactly what to do is uh, uh, very much underestimated and and underutilized. Uh, and I think we need to really exploit these billions of years of evolution that got this, uh, that, uh, generated these programs that are so good at making a perfect liver or a perfect heart. Um, and so, you know, but that, uh, I mean, of course, we're only beginning to understand that, but if we were able to fully understand, well, how do you regenerate or how do you generate a heart to begin with? And, and can you redo it in an in a, uh, adult? Yeah, I mean, we don't know that, but certainly... This fasting mimicking diet suggests that at least some of it can occur with every cycle. And uh, yeah, so definitely uh, longevity is our, is our uh, key uh, interest. Yeah, and my guess is that some of our viewers may be a little bit distressed when you say billions of years of evolution on that, but that's not certainly human evolution, but uh, many of these pathways that you're studying are in, in very primitive organisms that have been around for, for the, that, that long. So maybe you can touch on that before we go to the next question. Yes, and uh, our, our, my work started with bacteria many years ago, and you start bacteria and they live longer. And after that, I started yeast, also unicellular organism, what we use to make bread, um, microorganism, and they live a lot longer, right? So it was very obvious that this is something that started billions of years ago. The ability of any organism once it starved to stop and go into a protection mode that is maybe also somewhat regenerating, rejuvenating. Terrific. So I'm, I'm wondering if uh, I have two questions for you with respect to aging is if you could give as a, an aging longevity researcher, if you could provide your best recommendation for what to do now on that, it would just be essentially reading your book on uh, the longevity diet that that will hopefully be published in the United States soon. And then well, let's answer the next question. I have a follow up question for that. Yeah, yeah, and also before the book comes out, I have a Facebook uh, Professor Walter Longo page that people can go uh, to uh, to uh, to get updates. But the key, uh, the pescatarian diet I already described is definitely key. Uh, low protein but sufficient. Two phases of life, so when you get older, uh, keep them a normal weight and be highly nourished. Uh, even if you have to add to your diet uh, more ingredients that might not have. Uh, being part of your diet before. For example, I started talking in the book about some cheeses that all these centenarian population around the world, like goat cheese, and uh, uh, that you know you may not uh, have to want to use uh, frequently when you're younger, but you can use when you're older, or maybe some yogurt, uh, or maybe some eggs, right? So th some of these things are excluded before 65, 70, but then I say, you know, they're, they're really very rich in, in nutrition, and a lot of centenarians do it, so it might be a good idea. The other thing, I talk about is 12 hours, uh, 12 hours and 12 hours off on food, meaning that, um, yeah, you could do 8 and 16, meaning you only eat for 8 hours a day and then you fast for 16. But I think it's too extreme. There is some data that some studies suggest increased gallstone uh, uh, incidence. 
And so 12 and 12 is probably a very good uh, compromise. And I always like that to say, let's get the benefits, but let's not risk the, the negatives, right? And 12 and 12 is really a, a good thing to do, especially if you tend to gain weight. Uh, and then I also introduced the concept of two meals a day, two major meals a day uh, for people that tend to gain weight or overweight and, and three meals a day instead for the people that uh, don't have that problem or tend to lose weight. So that's also very important that, uh, that uh, you know, the, the abdominal fat uh, is uh, regulated and, uh, um, and, you know, and just the, the overall weight uh, stays healthy, both not being underweight or overweight. So those are the, the major recommendations. And high nourishment, I also, for example, give simple uh, advices on take a multivitamin every three days. Why every three days? Because probably every day, you never know, maybe you eventually we'll, we'll find out that that's not good for you. Some studies suggest that. But every three days, it probably eliminates uh, most of malnourishment. Uh, and at the same time, the chance that it does you damage is, is extremely low considering how many studies have been done on them and showing usually neutral effects. So do you think there's any concern about using intermittent fasting long-term or should that also be cycled up? Well, I mean, intermittent fasting usually refers to every other day fasting or, or this fasting oh, I'm sorry, that's, a good, you do. that's yeah. a good question. Let me, let me be more precise with my question. By intermittent fasting, I'm referring to the 12 to to six, eight hour window of, of uh, restricting your calorie ingestion too, but that, yeah. that's my term. So, so time, some people, can you do that long-term or do you, should you cycle that up too? Uh, no, no. I mean, the 12 and 12 is what people have always done, right? So it's called okay. time-restricted feeding. But if you look at centenarians, uh, whether it's Loma Linda or Okinawa or the Southern Italians, the people that are most successful, uh, almost unanimously, they have they uh, contain their uh, feeding period within 12 hours. So 8 a.m., 8 p.m., I think that the chance that that is going to cause problems is extremely low. Now, if you go to eight hours, it's different, right? Now you start to say 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., well, it could, it could not have any effects, or maybe it is a contributor to this weight loss that a lot of older people have, mm -hmm. which usually is associated with frailty. So I don't think it's such a good idea. And, and again, uh, if after 65, 70, people do, tend to lose weight, I think it's better to increase the, the food intake, uh, making sure that a healthy weight is maintained. And some of these things are way uh, underestimated, the, the importance of them. Okay, good. So the, the, the next question to that with respect to the, the meals, uh, I, I've come to believe from, from a molecular perspective on studying the mitochondria that it may be unwise to have your largest meal uh, certainly before you go to bed, but even later in the day, and that the, ideally the best the time timing for your largest meal of the day or the greatest amount of calories would be before your biggest activity. So for most people, that's going to be either in the morning or at at, at noon. But to, you know, when people eat a large dinner, and sometimes socially there's not a, there's not really a practical alternative. They come home to their family, they're going to eat at six seven o'clock at night, and then they just watch TV and go to bed. And I'm not sure that that's the wisest strategy for optimizing longevity. Yes, it, it probably is not, but in the book I talk about staying about four hours away, having about four hours from your last meal to your sleep time, uh, and as long as it doesn't bother you. So if you keep it four hours away and you don't have reflux or other problems, I think it's fine. 
uh, I, I did not see any evidence for that being a problem or any evidence that shortens your life. Um, but for most people, this could be a problem. And then I think you're right, uh, a larger lunch, and this is very typical among centenarians to have a large lunch and very small and early uh, uh, dinner. Okay, great. And then I'm wondering, again, as your uh, interest, 50% of your research is in longevity, if you have, and you're involved in, in networking with all the other researchers that are doing this, so do what do you see as a, a promising, maybe yet not a properly uh, researched intervention, but the most promising intervention that you could uh, suggest that is on the lies on the horizon that might be able to be utilized in the near future? I think uh, time restricted feeding, so that uh, is restricting the the time of uh, feeding and the work by Sachin Panda and others, uh, I think is the most promising. And um, and of course, uh, met, metformin, I think it'd be very nice once near Barzilla and others that are studying it, uh, come up with uh, large thousands of people studies. That would be very interesting, especially because at least a percentage of the people are not going to be able to do either time restricted feeding or periodic fasting or fasting mimicking diet. So I think for them, maybe metformin, if it turns out not to have side effects after you do it for 20 years, uh, maybe that's a good uh, option. But okay. we'll have to wait and see. All right. Well, I think I finished my questions, and I'm wondering if you have anything you'd like to emphasize or uh, some a topic to review that I haven't already uh, asked you about. No, I think uh, the main thing is to work with uh, uh, established products, and but also uh, doctors uh, and nutritionists uh, and dietitians uh, to make sure that uh, the power of these diets is not underestimated. I think a lot of people think that uh, they can do it at home, they can just cook it up. And, and we're seeing uh, both in Italy and the United States, a lot of people ending up in the doctor's office with a lot of problems because of that. Okay, good. And uh, we'll definitely keep posted on your new book and uh, any idea when it's going to be out in 2017 in the United States? I hope by the end of the summer. Uh, oh, okay. But again, if people go to the Professor Walter Longo Facebook uh, site, then uh, it, I'll give them an update on, uh, okay. on you know our papers, when we publish things, and also when the book is going to come out. Perfect. So that's the best way to keep in touch with what your research is doing is your Facebook page, Professor Walter Longo. Walter Longo with a Walter. V. V, yeah. But now with the W with a V. All right. Well, thank you for all your research. I greatly appreciate the time and opportunity to capture a portion of what you've been learning for the past few decades. It's always a privilege to connect with people who, like you, are so committed to uh, uncovering some of the details of what it takes to be optimally healthy. My pleasure. Thank you very much.